Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. None are righteous, not even one. And he says this, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so Paul paints this really bleak picture in the book of Romans about how we're sinners, how everyone, Jew, Gentile, everyone's a sinner. But then he turns it and he says, look, the reason why I need to convince you that you are all sinners is so that you actually understand that you need a savior. And when you understand you need a savior, you will understand that you are loved beyond your wildest imaginations. And so that's why we're talking about deadbeats. That's why we're talking about sin because ultimately we want you to know that Jesus loves you, that Jesus died on a cross for you, and he, and he paid the price for your sins. And so today we're going to be looking at, the, uh, at 1 Samuel chapter 4. We looked at 1 Samuel chapter 3 last week, but this week we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, we'll be looking at between the verses of 2 to 11. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with uh, me there, uh, with me uh, to, that, to that portion of the Bible. And we have two points for today. The first point is called presence, okay, like gifts. Okay, the second point is called presence, as in presence, like I'm here, okay? Uh, so if you can, uh, if you're able to, would you rise with me uh, as we read uh, this passage together? 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, verses 2 to 11. This is the reading of God's word. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring down, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was a very great slaughter for 30 thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you God for this time together. We pray that as we study this scripture, as we study these words, may your Holy Spirit help us to really understand this. Lord, would your presence be with us here now so that we can truly grasp who you are. We thank you in Jesus name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Um, 
you know, this past week, uh, something interesting happened. All of you may have heard or felt it yourself, which was the last 18 years we never had it, but we had an earthquake this last week. Isn't that crazy? You know, I came from California where we had earthquakes all the time, and we were like, we're moving to a place that has no earthquakes, and then we move here. Four months later, boom, we had an earthquake. And I remember where, uh, you know, I was sleeping, I was laying in bed and all of a sudden my bed started shaking, it started moving, and, um, and, and to be honest with you, I was, I was a little freaked out. Um, at that time, my wife was actually sleeping in my son's room. Uh, she oftentimes would fall asleep there. And uh, after the earthquake had settled, I just hear her footsteps coming over to our bed and she comes, she runs over to our bed and she, uh, she has her, uh, our son in her hands, she lays him on the bed and she's like, can we just all sleep here together as a family? I'm just so scared. And, and, and in that moment, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah I, I've got to be a man. I can't be afraid, right? So I was like, yeah, come here, come here, baby. Lay down next to me, right? Like, you know, I'll take care of you, you know? Um, but, but deep inside, I was really afraid. I was like really scared. Um, I'd never experienced a, an earthquake here in Seattle. And um, deep inside, I was fear, fearful. And, and actually, I, I wasn't able to fall back asleep for another hour or so. And it was because in my mind, just all these things started happening. Um, you know, when I was single and when I was living in Pasadena, California, I also experienced an earthquake there, but I actually fell asleep very quickly right after. Um, and it's because I didn't have a wife, I didn't have kids, I had no one to care about except for myself, so if I died, it was okay. But, but now I have my wife and my kid, and all of these thoughts just started going through my head. I was like, what if like, our, the ground underneath our house just opens up and our house falls in and we all die? Like, what if like, another earthquake comes and just thought after thought just kept running through my mind and I wasn't able to fall back asleep until I said, you know what, I'm gonna start praying. I'm gonna start praying. So I just, I just started praying and praying and praying and soon enough I fell asleep. And the reason why I bring that story up is because I think for a lot of us, uh, whenever we're in trouble, whenever we're in anxiety, whenever we have stressful situations, I think that's our default mode. I think even if you're a spiritual person or not spiritual person, uh, for us, the first move is always prayer. We're like, oh God, if there's a force out there, if there's some being out there, please like, help me now. Because in situations like that, we feel out of control and we need to feel back in control again. And so we go to somebody who we think has control over the entire situation. Now, that leads us nicely right into our, our story or into our passage in 1 Samuel. See, uh, let me kind of set this up for you a little bit, okay? In 1 Samuel chapter 3, one chapter before, it tells us something very important about the state of Israel's spiritual welfare. It says this, okay? Now, the boy Samuel, Samuel at the time was a young boy. He was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And listen to this, okay? And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So meaning this, they were faithful, they had some faith, but they weren't very spiritual. They were kind of in love with God, but not really. They were kind of like, okay, like a, there's God, whatever. Where they were kind of apathetic about their faith. And then it goes on in verse two, it says this, at that time Eli, whose eyesight had grown uh, dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. And then it says this in verse three, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And what that means is this, the lamp of God was there in the presence of the temple, and if the lamp of God was lit, and if it was on fire, that means God was with the people. But if it had gone out, that means God had left. Right, if you look at the book of Revelations chapter two, there's a church in Ephesus where God says, I'm gonna rip out your lampstand if you do not find your first love again. And what God is telling them is, look, I'm gonna take my presence from the church if you do not get your act together. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it calls the seven churches that he's writing to the seven lampstands because the church is where the presence of God exists. Well, it's telling us this because, again, Israel was kind of apathetic, but God had not completely left. 
right? And so now let's, let's look into our passage. The Israelites, they're getting ready for war. They're about to fight the Philistines. And it tells us that they go to war, they fight. But then in verse 2, it tells us this, that Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now here's a question for you. Have you ever been spiritually far from God and then experienced a blowing defeat in life? Because that's what it was, that, that was Israel, right? They were kind of far, they were kind of distant, they kind of still knew God, but, but, but all of a sudden they experienced this defeat. And have you ever been in that situation? Where maybe, maybe, you know, for, for some of you in high school, you were really, really good students, you were really, really good Christians, you got 4.0s, you loved Jesus, and then you go to college and you start drinking, you start partying, you start having fun, you start not going to church, you stop going to small groups, you start, stop reading your Bible, and then you notice your life starts to fall apart. You're like, oh my gosh, I have a 1.9 GPA, like all of my friends are not really my friends, and you find yourself defeated, and so you say, I'm going to go back to God. I'm going to go back because he's going to make my life better. Have you ever been in that situation? Or maybe for some of you, you devoted yourself to work, and in that process, you let go of your friends, you let go of church, you let go of your Bible reading, and, and, and now all of a sudden, your marriage is in shambles. You're like, your marriage is just you, just, you just, every night you're fighting, every single day, it feels like, why am I married to this person? And so you think, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to God, because my life was a little bit better when I was with God, so I'll go back and see what he can do for me. Or maybe just through a series of decisions, you stopped reading your Bibles, you stopped praying, you stopped going to church, you never stopped believing, but you just stopped kind of caring about your faith, and perhaps you're here today because you experienced defeat. And you're like, I, I've got to come back, man. I, I've got to start worshiping God again. See, this is human nature to go back to God after a defeat, and this is exactly what the Israelites do. In verse 3, it says, uh, the elders of Israel say this, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? In other words, why did God make us lose? And look at what they say next. They say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. In other words, right, the Ark of the Covenant was, was where the presence of God was. That's where the presence of the Lord resided. And so they thought, look, we're far from God. We're not doing spiritually well. But what if we bring the Ark of the Covenant with us? If we get close to God again, maybe he'll help us win. Maybe he'll give us victory. In fact, uh, soon right after, they're, they're encouraged again. They have a little mini revival. They have a little retreat session. They worship God. They praise him so loud that it says the earth resounded that they gave such a mighty shout. People were so encouraged. They had this reconnection with God. They were like, they had a beautiful worship service and they were like, yeah, God, we're one again. Great, we're gonna go out and fight. The Philistines, in fact, are scared. The Israelites are encouraged. It looks like they're about to win. But then look at what happens, verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. The Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. But wait, what? If you have the Ark of the Covenant, aren't you supposed to win all the time? If you have the presence of God, aren't you supposed to win all the time? If, if God is for you, who can be against you, right? If, if God is with you, aren't you just supposed to be winning in life? But here's the thing. Sometimes when you come back to God, sometimes when you come back to God, you'll actually lose even more than you win. You'll actually lose even more than you win. Your life might actually get worse, in fact. Look at what happens, right? The first battle, they lose 4,000 men. The second battle, it says that every man fled to his home, meaning that after that battle, every single Israelite became a coward. They were known as cowards. Secondly, not only were they known for cowards, but there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. 
So on top of the cowardice, 30,000 men died. And then on top of that, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And to kind of put this in context for you, imagine if every single Bible in the world were gathered together and burned, and we no longer had the Bible. That's similar to what happened. The Ark of the Covenant God means that they lost God himself. And then on top of that, the two sons of Eli died, uh, Phinehas and, uh, and Hophnia, which were the leaders of Israel at that time. Right, that's why our presidents, right, our vice president and our president never ride in Air Force One together because they don't want both leaders to die. Right, but, but, but here you see both leaders of Israel perish. So they're leaderless, they don't have God, they, don't, they lost 30,000 men, they're in serious, serious defeat. And here, like, here's the even crazier, okay, this is crazier to me, okay? Verse four, chapter one, uh, sorry, uh, chapter four, verse one, it says this. This is how the chapter begins. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Do you know what's interesting? It says that the word of Samuel is gonna come to Israel and guess when actually Samuel begins to speak? In chapter seven. So chapter four, it says the word of Samuel and then they insert all of these stories about the Ark of the Covenant. Samuel speaks, but then he doesn't actually speak till chapter seven. In other words, there's three chapters, three whole chapters where God is silent, where there's nothing happening. Where it's like, it's like God, like where is this word that you talked about? Where is this, where is this thing that you're, you said you were gonna bring? God is silent for not just a little while, not just for a moment, but for an entire season of life. And again, sometimes, sometimes, not all the times, but when you come back to God, you'll lose even more than you win. Your life might actually get worse before it gets better. And that makes many of us sad in this place, doesn't it? If you're like me, we think that Jesus is here to make your life better. If you're like me, you think Jesus is here to make your lives more successful. You're, you think Jesus is here to make you, your status go up and up. But, and don't get me wrong, I think being a Christian is one of, one of the most meaningful, fulfilling things you could potentially do with your entire life. But do you know that Jesus' job is not to give you success in your life? Jesus' job is not to make your life better and better. That's not his sole purpose. His sole purpose is to receive worship, to receive glory, to receive honor. Why? Because he's not a slave, he's a king. Jesus is a king and he deserves our worship. And yes, when you worship Jesus, you will experience joy, peace, and meaning and purpose, but that is not his job. His job is not to cater to you and to give you all the desires of your heart. Look, here's what I'm trying to get at. You can't manipulate God. You can't control him. God will do whatever God wants to do. And no matter what you do, you should be okay with that. Because God will do what he wants to do because he's the king and you're not. And there are times where he will give you things and there are times where he will take away things and you don't know why he does what he does. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly positive guy overall in my life. Like I'm generally pretty positive, but there are times where I can become very cynical I remember this one particular time I was talking to one of my previous congregation members and he was telling me about his testimony. And uh, he was telling me about how you know, he used to be in gangs, how he used to do drugs, how he used to drink and all of these things. And but one day his life kind of changed and turned around and he said this, he said, you know, he said, Pastor Eric, like I was driving this one night, I was high on marijuana, I was drunk and I was driving. And he said, my car spun out of control and I slammed straight into this wall. And he said, my car was completely destroyed. Like, I could not drive that car anymore. But he said, amazing thing, praise God. He's like, I came out of that alive. He's like, in fact, I came out of that unscratched, untouched, unhurt. And he said, from that moment on, I knew that the Lord was with me. 
I knew it. He's like, I knew that God was with me. I knew that God wanted me alive and he wanted me to be his servant. So I started, I turned my life around and, and I started walking with God again. And in that moment, I was like, yeah, man, praise God. Praise God for that testimony. But the other side of me was a little cynical and I said, well, what if that didn't happen? Like, what if you had crashed and you had become handicapped? What if you had crashed and you had died? In fact, when I was in high school, my junior year, uh, there, was a se- there was a guy who was a senior one year above me. Uh, he uh, he was, had a really great looking future. He was gonna play defensive line for the University of Washington, full ride scholarship. He was a good Christian, loved the Lord, but one night he made a mistake. He drank and he drove. And he ended up falling asleep at the wheel. He crossed over the barrier and he slammed straight on into a bus and he died. I remember standing my junior year at this funeral just weeping my eyes on and saying, man, how could this have happened? And so if you, you, see, you see where I'm going with this. Are you saying that he was with this person but not with this? Was God with the first person but not with the second person? Are you saying that God is only with those who he gives success to? No. I can guarantee you that God was with both. God was present in both their lives. God was working in both of their lives, but sometimes God gives and sometimes God doesn't give. Sometimes God decides to act and we cannot control him. We cannot tell him what to do. We cannot order him around. We cannot manipulate him. He is not a vending machine that we can put a dollar into and say, now give me because God doesn't work like that. God is a king. He's sovereign. He's in control. Look, I I wish I could tell you that God is controllable. I wish I could tell you that. I wish I could tell you all the ways you could pray and make God do what you want him to do. But I don't know why God saved Daniel in the lion's den, but, but God didn't save Stephen in the book of Acts when he was standing boldly for him. And Stephen gets stoned and he dies. I don't know why God saved Daniel, but he let Stephen die. I don't know why uh, uh, God saved the apostle Peter from jail after only a night in prison, but he let Joseph in the book of Genesis rot in jail for 20 years. I don't know why, and I wish I could explain that to you. But here's what I do know is that God cannot be controlled. God is king, God is sovereign, and he cannot be manipulated or controlled. If you read the Bible, God oftentimes only does one thing one time. Right, think about the the burning bush. Does God ever do that again? No, only one time for Moses. In fact, every other time there was a burning bush and somebody tried to talk to it in history, I'm sure they died. They got perished by the fire. In the book book of Daniel, Daniel saved. I'm sure every other time somebody stood in a lion's cage. They were eaten alive, I'm sure of it. Look, there there was only one time where, or two times, sorry, where God allowed Enoch and Elijah to not experience death, but every single other person in the world died, including Lazarus, who was raised back from the dead. God destroyed the the walls of Jericho with one great shout and a trumpet's horn, but he never performed that miracle ever again. Because God cannot be controlled. God cannot be manipulated. In fact, if you read the New Testament, think about all the miracles Jesus does. He rarely, rarely ever heals people the same way twice. Sometimes he spits into the dirt and rubs it into people's eyes. Sometimes he spits on people's faces. Sometimes he spits into his fingers and wedges it in in between their ears. Sometimes he uh, uh, lets people touch his cloak. Sometimes he just speaks a word and they're healed. But, But he's not controllable. And you can't tell God how to work. Here's the point, God is not some cosmic vending machine that can be controlled. He's not a formula that can be manipulated. God is God and he will do what he pleases. And you see, that's exactly what the Israelites were doing. They were treating God like a vending machine. They brought the Ark of the Covenant because if you remember in Joshua chapter six, they marched around the wall of Jericho with what? The Ark of the Covenant. And they gave a great big shout like they do here and God gives them victory. But here in this story, they don't get victory. They don't get victory because they try to control 
God. If you think this is unfair, it's because you, look, I think this is unfair, right? For a lot of us, we think this is so unfair. And if we think that way, if you think like I do, it's because you and I don't love God for God. We don't love God for God. You love God because you want something from him. If you think this is unfair, it's because you look at God as a vending machine. You look at God as if he is some person that's just gonna give you everything you want. See, they didn't love God. They were just using God. They were just using Christ. At the end of the day, if your life is good or bad, you shouldn't desire, you shouldn't desire God not because of what he can do for you, but you should desire God simply because of who he is. See, we entitled this sermon series Using Christ because that's exactly what we do. We use Christ. We try to manipulate him. We try to control him and we use him and Christ says, I don't like that. You know, besides like murderers, I think the second people that we disrespect in our society the most are probably like gold diggers, right? Wouldn't you agree? In fact, there was a song, there was a theologian named Kanye West, right? Who came up with this amazing song. You know what the song says? Let me read you the first lines of that song, right? She take my money when I'm in need. Yeah, she's a trifling friend indeed. Oh, she's a gold digger way over town that digs on me. If Kanye West thinks that a gold digger is disrespectful, if Kanye West doesn't respect a gold digger, I mean, our society probably places gold digging way at the bottom, right? In fact, you know, for me, I, I didn't know what trifling meant, so I had to look it up, so I actually found an article for, uh, in NPR. There was a, a lady named Tanya Ballard-Brown. She's a journalist and writer for NPR, and she actually wrote a whole article on trifling. And she, this, this is what she says. She says, when I was growing up in uh, North Carolina, I knew that along with shiftless and lazy, one of the worst things a person could be uh, uh, was, uh, was trifling. The way my grandma used the word, it seemed to mean shiftless, lazy, useless, worthless, and no good all at once. So no, you did not want to be trifling. And so you see Kanye West calls gold diggers what trifling. Look, fathers, if you have daughters, right, who do you have the least respect for? Or what's your greatest nightmare? Right, is that some guy would come along and would use your girl, use your little girl for sex, just to use her, not to appreciate her, not to love her, but to use her just for her body. Isn't that your worst? And wouldn't you want to just destroy that person who would do that to your lovely, amazing daughter? See, we would consider gold diggers and these men dishonorable, disreputable, scum of the earth, and some of us would even say that they are probably the worst things on the face of this planet, and yet don't you realize that we treat God like that? We treat God like that. We treat God like, hey, like, I'm going to give you something, I'll give you my relationship, but now I want you to do stuff for me. In fact, do you realize, do you realize that the Bible, okay, I'm sorry, there's, there are kids in here, okay, but, but Hosea, the book of Hosea, this is Bible language, okay, I'm not making this stuff up, I'm just the messenger, I just read the Bible, okay, just, so don't shoot me, okay, Hosea chapter 1 verses 2, the, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, you know what God is basically calling us, he's calling us whores, because we use a relationship to get something. In fact, he says it three times in this. He says, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Look, prostitutes, whores, they pretend to have a relationship to get something from that person. And he says, that's what you are. 
That's what you do. You just use me. Don't you realize that I'm a person? I want relationship with you, but you just keep coming to me, trying to manipulate me, trying to control me. I don't like that. And neither would you. We have a relationship with God so that we can ask him for stuff. So we can have success at our jobs, success in our marriages, success in our friendships, comfort in our lives, peace for our families, status and recognition. And when God doesn't give us those things, we say, God, how dare you? How dare you treat me that way? Do you know what I get angry at? I get angry at vending machines. I get angry when I put in a dollar and the vending machine turns, 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 and it gets stuck, right? Don't you get angry? And we grab and we shake and we punch the thing. We're like, give me what you owe me. We do the same thing to God. And here's my question to you today. Do you want Jesus because of his presence or do you want Jesus because of his presence? Oh, wasn't that good? Wasn't that good? <laughs> I sat with my wife and I told her, hey, do you think this is too cheesy? Do you want Jesus for his presence or his presence? She just rolled her eyes. She's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm sure some pastor in some time used that phrase or whatever, but I, I liked it. I was like, oh, presence over presence. Yeah. You know, when I was, um, I came to this church a very long time ago, back in 2003, and I was a college student. And during that time, uh, I, I used to go to the other side, that, the building over there, and I used to serve in the children's ministry. But the, the, the English ministry, New Life, only had one service at that time, only an 11.30 service. We didn't have this 9.30. And so for 9.30 service, I had to go and worship with our youth ministry. And at the time, our youth pastor was named Derek. And I remember this one sermon, I don't know why this sermon stuck with me, but this one illustration that he gave really stuck with me. This is a Pastor Derek, and he opened up his sermon by asking this question. He said, what would you worship if Jesus took away your home? He's like, he's like I, I see you guys praising here today. He's like, what would you worship if Jesus took away your home? And in my head, I was like, oh, you know, I'd worship God for my family. I'd worship God for my clothes, my shoes, all these different things. And he's like, okay, 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 what if, what if God took away your home and your shoes and your clothes? What then would you worship him for? And I was like, oh, I'd worship him for my relationships, for my friends, for my family, for this church. And then he says, what if God took away those things? What if he took away your family? What if he took away this church? What if he took away all your friendships? What would you then worship him for? Then I was like, oh, I know I got this one, salvation. I still got Jesus, right? I got salvation, like, you know, I'm gonna go to heaven, like that, right, that's great. And he said, what if Jesus took away your salvation? Could you still worship Jesus? And as I was thinking about that, I was like, I don't know. Can we worship Jesus if he took away our salvation? And he answered this question by saying, yes, you can. Because do you realize that worship is not just about worshiping God for what he's done for you, but because of who he is. Just simply for who he is. Right, let me give you an example. Has Michael Jordan done anything for you? Has he given you money? Has he treated your family well? Has he bought you shoes? No. And yet, what do we do? We worship Michael Jordan because, wow, he's just amazing. The way he dunks the ball, the way he can dribble, the way he can shoot, it's just amazing. And you can worship God not because he's done anything for you, but simply because of who he is, how amazing he is. You know that song, I will worship you, what? For who you are. I will worship you for who you are, Jesus. Not because of all the stuff you give me, not because of all of, this, all of these things, but simply because of who you are. Do you want Jesus because of his presence or because of his presence? Do you want his gifts or do you want the giver? Do you want the creation or the creator? And here's a litmus test for your hearts. 
Here's a test that you can ask yourselves, okay? This, is, this comes from a pastor named John Piper, and I love this quote. I've used it in other sermons before, but I love this quote that he gives. He listened to this. He says, the critical question for our generation, and he says, for every generation is this. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you, you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Like, do you simply want Jesus because he gives you a ticket into heaven? Do you want Jesus simply because he lets you into the pearly gates? Do you want Jesus simply because he's going to let you live forever? Do you simply want to be with Jesus because you're so scared of going to hell? Do you want Jesus simply because you think heaven's going to be flowing with the best stuff ever? Or do you want heaven because that's where Jesus is going to be? Do you want heaven because you know, oh my gosh, I, I get to spend my eternity with this person that I love, that I cherish, that I hope to meet every single day of my life. Do you want heaven for those reasons? You know, there's this, uh, I, I would never, never recommend you watching this movie, especially married men, please do not watch this movie. But it was, it's an old, old movie and some of you have already probably watched it, but there was a movie a long time ago called Indecent Proposal. Um, and I'm sure some of you guys have watched it and seen it. It stars uh, Robert Redford, Demi Moore, and Woody Harrelson. And um, it's, a, it's a very, it's, it's such a heart-aching story. The story follows Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore. Uh, Woody Harrelson's name is David, and his wife's name, Demi Moore, is uh, Diana. And David and Diana start the movie off with an amazing relationship. They're high school sweethearts. They fall in love. They care for one another. Um, they, but, but on the flip side, they have nothing. Their home is almost in foreclosure. Um, you know, uh, David, his, his dream job or his dream thing is to build, he's an architect, he wants to build his dream home, and yet they have no money. They're almost about to go bankrupt, in fact. And so David and Diana uh, end up getting a loan from his father. He takes the $5,000 that his father gives him, and he says, what if we go to Las Vegas and we just gamble all of this away? So they go to Las Vegas, they gamble it, and on the first day, they turn that 5000 into 25000 and they're like celebrating, they're so happy, they're like, yeah, we're gonna make it, because they just need $50,000 to kind of get out of this hole. So he's like, if we can make 25 in one day, imagine what we could do with two. They go to Las Vegas the next day, they start gambling, and one game after another, they start losing everything. And finally, in this last game, they bet their last 5,000, and they lose it all. And in that moment, Robert Redford's character steps in, his name is John Gage. And John Gage comes up to Demi Moore and says, I've been, I've been looking at you, you, you know, you're really pretty. And he says, he gives him this indecent proposal. And he says, look, I'll give you a million dollars. I'll give you a million dollars if you let your wife sleep with me just for one night. Just for one night. And at first, Woody Harrelson's character, David's like, no way, get out of here. Like, how dare you bring this up? But they go back home and they talk about it. They sleep on it. And as they're sleeping and discussing about it, sooner or later they say, well, we could have one night, just one night, for a lifetime of security. One night for a lifetime of security. And so they decide to go ahead with it. Uh, John Gage ends up sleeping with Diana. But over the course uh, of weeks and months, the relationship, David and Diana's relationship begins to deteriorate. Because David's like getting insecure. He's like, like did you like it? Like, did you like him? Like, like, and, and, and their marriage starts to fall apart. And sooner or later, along in the movie, they separate. They end up losing each other. And in fact, uh, uh, John Gage ends up reigniting his kind of his pursuit of Diana. So he goes after her and he ends up, she ends up going to John and they end up starting a relationship. 
And towards the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, uh, David has this really uh, intense conversation with Diana. And um, Diana's filing for divorce now. They've separated physically, but now they want to get a divorce. And this is the interesting part of the movie. David basically goes up to Diana, and he donates the million dollars that he got to, to charity. He throws it all away. He doesn't care about the money anymore. And what he basically says to Diana is he says, look, like we gave up everything for this. We gave up our love. We gave, I gave up your presence for all of this money. And at the end of the day, that money was worth nothing to him. He threw it all away because he didn't have a person. He didn't have his wife. And you see, friends, for us, like, are, are we willing to do that with Christ? Do we want all the stuff? Do we want our dreams to come true but never have Christ? Because I'm telling you, a world where, where, where we don't have Christ but we have everything, it's a nightmare. Friends, to have Christ means everything. It makes your life fulfilling. It gives you meaning. It gives you everything your heart has ever desired. You know, there's a famous story in Exodus chapter 33 of Moses. And Moses, if you know, he starts off as this little shy dude, right? He goes to the burning bush. God is like, hey, go talk to Pharaoh. And he's like, no, I can't do it. But around Exodus chapter 33, 30 chapters later after Moses is called, he has this amazing conversation with God. And God says to him in verses 1 and 3, he says this to Moses. Depart, he says, Moses, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But then he says this, but I will not go up with you. My presence won't go with you. Do you see what God is telling Moses? He's saying this, I'm going to give you heaven. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you all of your heart's, your, your heart's dreams and desires and everything you've ever wanted. You wanted the land flowing with milk and honey? Here it is. I'll give it to you. But I'm not going to go with you. And he says, I'm not going to go with you because you sinned against me. You worship this golden calf, and I'm not going to go with you. And Moses, later on in verse 15, he says to him, he says to God this, and this is crazy. Moses says this, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He says, God, if you're not going to come with me, I don't want my dreams. I don't want money. I don't want land. I don't want possession. I don't want success. I don't want any of it. If you're not going to come with me, if you're not there with me, God, I don't want it. And this is what our hearts should be like, friends. That even if we lost the world, even if we lost everything and we have Christ, we have everything. That even if we don't, our jobs don't succeed, even if we don't get all the money in the world, even if everything goes to, 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 to hell, as long as we have Jesus, we're filled. We have joy, we have purpose, we have Christ himself because we don't have his gifts, but we have Jesus himself. This moves us on to our second point, presence. Presence. How do we become a people who desire God's presence instead of his presence? How do we desire Jesus but not his gifts? Because I think for some of you, if you're like me, you're like, like I want that. I want to not care about the things of this world. I want this. But how do I get Jesus? Like, how do I make myself want to love Jesus more? The first thing is this. I have three things for you just to consider. It's very quick. But the first thing is this. First is to see his true name. First is to see his true name. Uh, do you know that the Ark of the Covenant, that's the short name for the Ark of the Covenant. This, this chapter actually gives us the full name of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a really long name. It says this in verse 4. 
Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. That's the full name of the Ark of the Covenant. So people got too tired to say that, right? That's too long of a name. Uh, so they were just like, okay, Ark of the Covenant, Ark, Ark of the Lord, Ark of God, right? They called it these things. But the full name of the Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And you see, if the Israelites had just recognized the actual full name of the Ark of the Covenant, they would have actually not used God. Because what this name tells us is that God is enthroned above the cherubim. Meaning this, cherubim were the most powerful creatures in all the universe. To the Israelites, the cherubim were the highest angels. In fact, do you remember the Garden of Eden when God kicks out Adam and Eve? He leaves a cherubim there with a flaming sword to keep everyone out of the garden so that they don't eat of the tree of life. And you see, the cherubim were the most powerful creatures and, and God says, I sit above them. I like, I'm sitting on them. I'm enthroned on them. That's how powerful I am. That's how sovereign and kingly and ruly I am. And if you just recognize my true name, that I'm not a slave, uh, that I'm not your servant, but I'm actually a king, he's like, you wouldn't have tried to control me. Look, friends, if we understand that God is a king and he's not your servant, we won't treat him like this. In fact, what you'll desire to do is to spend time. Don't we want to spend time with larger than life figures? Isn't that why we all want to meet celebrities? Isn't that why on Instagram we post if we see a celebrity in real life? Because they're larger than life. And in the same way, if you see God as larger than life, you'll actually want to spend time with him. It's, it's strange, it's a strange thing. Like for me, larger than life figure that I love is Conan O'Brien. I watched Conan O'Brien growing up. Uh, I was so sad when he got kicked off the Tonight Show. I almost wept because of that. And I don't even know Conan. Like, I don't know him personally, but for me, I like wept with him. I was like, I'm so sad, Conan. You know, I'm like talking to him in my own head. <laughs> we desire to be with people who are larger than life. That's why I spent four hours waiting in line to go to the Tonight Show when Conan O'Brien was still the host of the Tonight Show. I waited in line for four hours just to get in. And then afterwards, you have to wait even longer uh, as they prepped you for the show after doing all that. Why? Because I just wanted to see Conan O'Brien. Because I just wanted to be in the same room as him. If you understand that God is a king, I'm telling you, you will want to spend time with him. Look, but here's the converse. You know, um, as Pastor Minguk mentioned, um, you know, we had Toontown this week, and I was tasked with teaching a Bible station. And I'm telling you, this was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Because kids uh, are, are, are just, they're, they're horrible people sometimes, okay? They can be very, very horrible. And uh, I remember we were playing this uh, game, this ping pong game, where you had to blow the ping pongs off the table into this little bucket to catch it. And so these kids are blowing it. But the fifth graders, the fifth grade boys kept, uh, uh, when the ping pong ball would go off and not get into the bucket, but it rolled onto the floor, they would take it and they would steal it. And then I wouldn't have enough balls for the game, so I'd be like, hey, where's my, where are the ping pong balls? Who stole it? And then after like a minute or two, the ball would come rolling out of the crowd and onto the ground. I'm like, and I would just get so upset. But there were constantly things like this happening. Uh, there was another kid who was complaining that we were playing a game. And so towards the end of Toontown, I kind of snapped at him. I was like, you don't want to play this game? I was like, there's a door, buddy. I literally said this. I was like, there's the door. I was like, you don't have to be here with us. Everyone else can play. You don't have to play. Go leave. I literally told him that, right? Um, there was another kid uh, uh, who, uh, you know, I, I, there, we had this activity where uh, we, we got them Rice Krispie treats and we were going to have them all, we were trying to teach them about community and there was this big Rice Krispie treat that we were going to have them all eat together. And I was trying to hype it up, trying to make a big surprise and uh, finally I revealed the surprise. I was like, Rice Krispie treats. And this one kid was like, I don't want to eat that. And I said, fine, you don't have to eat it. I was like, you don't have to tell me that, just don't eat it. It's okay. I kind of snapped at him, right? 
But one of the things that really like, really just got me so, so upset was while I was preaching, while I was teaching the kids about the Bible, this one kid just said, stop talking. <laughs> the, I, I, I almost lost my ordination that day. I was about to like, just go over there and just do something to him. Because, because why, why is that like, why does that anger me so much? Because, right, in some sense, hierarchically, right, there's a distance, right? Like he's a kid, I'm pastor, I'm, elev- I'm above, right? There's something about that, right, nature. And so when somebody is speaking down, like somebody below you speaking up towards you and disrespecting you, there's like this anger, there's an emotion there. Now, of course, I'm a sinful being. You know, of course, a lot of that was sin. But, but imagine this now. When we tell God, when we order God around, and we're his creatures, mind you. He created us with just a, with just a little snap of the finger. And we're talking to God and we're saying, God, do this for me. Stop talking, start doing stuff for me, God. I don't want to read your scriptures, just start doing stuff for me. When you start thinking about it like that, doesn't it make you even sick? That you can do these things to God? And so you see, our first job is to remind ourselves that God is above us, that God is enthroned above the cherubim, and that he will do as he pleases. And as we begin seeing God above us, we actually begin wanting to spend time with him. We actually begin seeing that we're not ordering God around, but that God actually orders us around. The second thing is that we see his sacrifice. We see his sacrifice. See, because even though I said God is not a servant, the New Testament does tell us that Jesus came to serve. He came not to be served, but he came to serve as a ransom for many. And so even though he is this God enthroned above the cherubim, the New Testament tells us that he stepped down from that throne and he offered up his life on our behalf. He offered up his life and said, you know what, even though I'm king, even though I'm uh, overseeing this whole universe, I'm going to step down from my power, from my riches, from my throne, so that I can die for your sins. Because even though you ran away from me, even though you're the one that prostituted yourself, even though you're the ones that did these things, I will sacrifice myself so that I can be in a relationship with you. And you see, when you begin seeing not only that he's the king, but he sacrifices for us, that he sacrifices, it shows his true character. It shows who he really is. And that's our third and last thing, which is to see his true character. You see, when you begin understanding that he's a king and that this king came and sacrificed for you, that he laid his life down, it shows who he really is. And as you get to know who he truly is, you will want to spend time with him. That he's not a God who counts all of our sins. He's not a God who keeps record of all of these things, but rather he takes those things, he tears them apart, and he dies for them. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who lives in us. The New Testament tells us that when Jesus Christ died on a cross, his Holy Spirit descended and is present in each and every single one of you. This is what I taught the kids this week, that the Holy Spirit lives in you. The very presence of God is with you even now. And the amazing, amazing thing about the New Testament is this. It tells us in Matthew chapter 7, it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And he's not talking about riches. He's not talking about stuff. He's not talking about status. He's not talking about comfort or peace. He's saying if you seek me, if you seek my presence, if you seek me, I will open the door for you. I will come to you. And in fact, I'm already with you. If you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, his Holy Spirit is dwelling in you this moment, now and forever. This is the God that we worship. Even though we're deadbeats, even though we're sinners, even though we turn away, he still lives with us. 
He's still present with you and I. And friends, we know, we have the assurance of this presence because we know that Jesus Christ lives in us because of the cross, because of his resurrection. And friends, I pray that as you leave this place, you would leave this place being filled with this knowledge that Jesus Christ, that his Holy Spirit lives with you and me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I confess to you, God, that there are so many times where I come to you in prayer and the first thing I do, God, is I ask you for stuff. I say, God, give me this. God, give me that. God, give me this. And, and God, yet I, I confess, God, that there are so many times where, God, I just don't worship you. God, that I don't just bask in your presence, that I don't just love you for who you are. And Lord, I, I, I'm assuming that there are many of us in this place who live that way. God, who treat you like a cosmic vending machine. And Lord, we're so sorry that we treated you that way. We're so sorry that we treated you as just another thing, God, that we can ask stuff from. But Lord, now we come back to you in humility, asking that your presence would come with us. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be here with us now. That your Holy Spirit would fill each and every heart in this room. That your Holy Spirit would be with us as we go out of this room, as we worship in this next song. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be with us, comforting us, bringing us your very presence. And Lord, we pray that your presence would be enough for us. That that would be all we desire and seek in this life. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. We pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.